Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 621st edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Daniel Feuerstein. I'll give you American perspective of our clubs, leagues, players, national team, and other fabulous moments. Get your daily reading from me and other writers over at Beyond the 90 at beyondthe90.substack.com. And, of course, locally on the New York Red Bulls at Red Bull News Network. But, as always, this show is dedicated to the American game. The chat room is open. Come on in. Discuss amongst yourselves if you like. If you have a question for me, I'll try to answer it to the best of my abilities. First things first, before we begin uh, the first show of the 2024 season of the Four Year Scenes Fire American Soccer Show, I'd like to just uh, give my condolences to the family of, uh, sadly, we uh, lost another great footballing legend, uh, who was, who's passed away. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, it, it's really a shame that, of course, former German football legend, former Bayern Munich legend, and, of course, his time with the New York Cosmos, Franz Beckenbauer, um, passed away at the age of 78, um, and of course, you know, you know, winning, uh, the world cup for, uh, at the time, which it was West Germany, uh, one of the three championships, of course, you know, later on, as we all know, the last time the German national team, when the country reunited afterwards, of course, uh, won their third world cup. It was, uh, of course, down in Brazil in 2000. And 14 World Cup, but once again, you know, he was a part of those German national teams that did amazing things, and of course, came over to the NASL to play with Pele, Giorgio Canalia, uh, Shep Messing, Werner Roth on the New York Cosmos, and uh, also was involved in the sale of the Metro Stars as he was assisting his friend Dieter Mateschitz to purchase the Metro Stars to become, of course, the New York Red Bulls in Major League Soccer. And if it wasn't for Franz Beckenbauer's influence to help the Metro Stars become the New York Red Bulls, then obviously we would not have Red Bull Arena in Major League Soccer. So obviously he will be missed. And of course, he is already missed. Just a very uh, terrible moment course to see Franz Beckenbauer uh, no longer with us on his earth and to his uh, family uh, we send our my condolences uh, to the Beckenbauer family for the loss of Franz uh, Franz Beckenbauer and it's just once again very sad and tragic moment once again friends Franz Beckenbauer dead at the age of 78 uh, very sad to hear that, and uh, and obviously his legacy will always be a part of world football and German football as well as American soccer in the United States. 
But now it's time to move forward, ladies and gentlemen. And as we will review tonight's show, we'll be reviewing the sensational documentary of the billion-dollar goal that was done on Paramount Plus through CBS Sports. You know, when we talk about the history of this game in the United States, it's not talked about enough about the past because of the murkiness of the past. And when I put it in that sense, we've had clubs and leagues have come and gone. Mostly these teams were mostly considered, I guess, these days amateurish, but at the time were the professional teams. And even though our national teams were never that good and that strong, and we've had subtle moments on the international level, not just, you know, in World Cups not being there, but internationally within our own, I guess you can call it territory at that time. Obviously, we know it's confederation now, but back then, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to think what the setup was or or how it was done. And when you finally get this jewel of a documentary to talk about where the sport began and where it is now, it's considered like night and day. To see those moments in black and white and in color before the greatest moment in the sport in our country's history for what happened that afternoon in Port of Spain, in Trinidad and Tobago, where finally a strike of a left foot finally went into the net and this beautiful string of World Cup appearances till 2017 where they failed and came back in 2022. Just amazing to see the history of everything that was documented by people who have been there, part of the documentary. And sadly, this documentary will be the last time and the only time that we will ever see Grant Wall alive. To be a supervising producer of this documentary that Grant Wall was a part of was just amazing to watch. To be discussed with, of course, many people who I have uh, worked with, known of, said hello to, um, good relationships with, obviously, you know, great jobs by uh, Paul Maurer, Iglesias, um, of course, Ives Gallersep, Michael Lewis, who will be on this show tonight to, t- to discuss his part of the documentary, uh, to talk to those former players of past teams, whether it be uh, on the NESL teams, National teams, of course, Tab Ramos, Paul Gallagher himself, 
Tony Miola, and so many others that were involved in this documentary, including those that are U.S. soccer historians that have, you know, give them credit documenting anything and everything that was involving the game in this country all the way to 1930, up to a certain point, obviously. Because this is where we don't talk enough about the history of the game in this country. Yes, there were glimpses of the North American Soccer League. Yes, there were glimpses of the American Soccer League. Now we have Major League Soccer. Now we have the United Soccer Leagues. Now we have NISA. Now we have NPSL. Now we have the U.S. Adult Soccer Associations. But the national team of now and the talent that we're developing now within our soil, local academies, Major League Soccer academies, United Soccer League clubs, whether it be in Championship, League One, League Two, they're academies. Now it's getting better. Now it's building. Now we are starting to get there. And once again, we must appreciate the history that we have in this country for the game in, for the, the game in the United States. Because if we continue to not appreciate the history of what is going on, in the United States for the sport of soccer, football, football. What are we doing? Are we just playing it just for the hell of it? Are we just worrying more about what goes on on the other side of the Atlantic, on the other side of the Pacific, below us, past the southern border? Important to everyone to understand. History must be on our side. And I am not saying we cannot involve those that have been superstars in Europe, superstars in South America, superstars wherever they are on on this earth, domestically, internationally. They must come here to help us to get better. We are developing the talent. And yes, we need to export the talent, but at the same time, we cannot ignore the talent that is on our shores and on our pitches and in our stadiums, whether they are true soccer stadiums or not. This is why it's important to document everything. I try to document as much as I can, but I'll admit I have no time. And I thank all of the people who take the time and the energy, and the patience to document every single moment a ball has been kicked, passed, thrown in, cornered, saved, scored, and celebrated. History. And what are we doing? What are we doing? And if we don't have the famous characters and the superstars and the defenders and the keepers 
and the something specials that are going to come through the systems to finally get on that magical stage. And we have nothing. I give plaudits to the players who have performed for us domestically, internationally. I thank the writers for covering and documenting everything that goes on in this game. And I thank the historians. I thank them for spending each precious moment, every second, minute, hour, day, week, month, year, and years, and centuries to document every single moment of American soccer and what it means to us. Tonight's first show of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show of 2024 is to say thank you and to praise the people that were not only a part of this documentary, but to honor their service in what they have done for the game in this country. We can always talk about what goes on in England. We can always talk about what goes on in Mexico, in Germany, in Spain, in Argentina, in Italy, in France, in the Dutch, in Brazil, Paraguay, Colombia, Ecuador, you know, Egypt. We can talk about anything and everything outside and off of our shores. But what we need to make sure about is this, is that we give respect to those people who were a part of that documentary and how they chronicled everything from the beginning up to now, and hopefully when the future comes up, it will be a big moment. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, this show tonight, we will be discussing and reviewing the documentary on Paramount Plus through CBS Sports, The Billion Dollar Goal. First things first, my first guest tonight, he is a U.S. soccer historian. He has uh, followed everything of U.S. soccer related from the NASL days up till now. Uh, you saw him, Mr. Dave Wasser, will join me right now to talk about his time on the documentary. Dave, thank you for your time. Welcome to the show. And thank you for being a part of that. It was so informal informal, and in, you know, very informed. I enjoyed your moments on the documentary. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Dan. And uh, I enjoyed being on the documentary myself. Uh, I was very honored when they called and, and asked me to be a part of it. And, um, you know, they, they filmed that about a year and a half ago. And I, after, you know, after about a year, I thought they had just abandoned the project. I thought, oh, well, they're just never going to bother doing it. And then I was so pleasantly surprised when the whole thing came together. And, and, and it was and it was edited so well, and they got such a great variety of people. I mean, that that's I think that's the best documentary of the history of American soccer I've ever seen. Uh, really well done. I yeah. think. Uh, and, no, it really ahead. was. Yeah, no, it really was. And yeah, I, I mean, can say this. It, I mean, mm-hmm. 
No, you can go ahead. No, no, I, you know, and I, I have a, an archive of the Star Soccer videos, and I can tell you that over the last 20 years, I've been contacted by several different producers who wanted to use the, my videos for a, a, a documentary project about American soccer history, and the project never actually came to fruition. I mean, they always sort of uh, died, and I mean, I'd contact the person, and they'd say, oh, yeah, we wanted to do it, but we've moved on to other things, and so this one, I'm just so pleased that it actually was finished, and, 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 and then just done so well yeah it, it's great i i, I if you, you it, to all the people listening out there if you don't currently subscribe to paramount plus this is a good reason to, to get a subscription because i think you'll really enjoy the the, the film it's done absolutely. so well absolutely yeah. absolutely it really does and i to be honest with you i think that's the only documentary i've seen purely based on u.s soccer history alone and yes. to talk about some of the things in the documentary the one thing i never knew this and I guess because, you know, everything is now so documented and obviously everything has to be, I guess, prioritized and make sure everything's legitimate and legal through FIFA now. Um, I never knew that back in the day, passports were not met, you know, they, they, they weren't yeah. really, uh, you know, prioritized to make sure that if you were from the country of birth, to play for that national team that you were representing, they never paid attention to that stuff. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Yeah, the World Cup was a whole lot more casual back then. I mean, it just wasn't the big deal that it is now. And yeah, the national team, the players in the national team were just whoever the national team decided to present as their team. Uh, yeah, anybody living in the country could qualify, and they probably, FIFA probably didn't even bother to check whether the person was really living in the country. So somebody somebody could from another country just could, could just come along and, and, and represent that and a, a different country, a country which they are not a citizen of. And that's just the way it was. I mean, the, the irony is that the winning goal in the USA victory over England in 1950 was scored by a guy who was not an American citizen. He was, he was an Asian citizen who just happened to be living in America. And they thought, oh, hey, this, this guy can play. Let's put him on our team. That's the way it was. Now, I don't know the specific year that it changed where, when FIFA suddenly decided, well, you know, we better actually require people to prove their citizenship in order to play for national team. I'll have to look that up and see when that changed. But, uh, you know, fortunately, now it's, it's, it's far more closely regulated. Um, I mean, nowadays, you know, I, I know that there have been some countries that have tried to import a whole bunch of other players. From Didn't Qatar try to do that? They tried to import like a dozen Brazilians, and FIFA actually stepped in and said no. You know, they're not Qatari citizens. You can't do that. So uh, you, you can't buy a national team at this point. You have to actually develop it in your own country. Thank goodness for that, because I'll tell you this yeah. much. They took the World Cup. They wanted to take something else as well before, I guess, that World Cup ever happened. Um, let's yeah. move on ahead and talk about, of course, as we all talked about, you know, the fascination that England just loves to make fun of us because we call it soccer, even though they developed the word themselves. And I can don't understand why, why they keep got to yeah. needle us every single time. There's a lot of irony in that. Uh, as I explained in, in, in Billion Dollar Goal, the English were perfectly fine using the word soccer until the late 1970s. Prior to the late 1970s, soccer was just an alternate term for the sport. Um, in the same way that maybe like the word gridiron is, a, is an alternate term for American football. Only when soccer got big in the United States and suddenly they, the English didn't want to use it because that term soccer had now become too associated with America. Look, England has, has something of an inferiority complex 
when it comes to America in a lot of different areas. And for them, soccer was just something that they were always better at. And so they took a lot of pride in that. Um, and then when America came along and started playing really well, then it, then it kind of, you know, then they started getting, the English started getting defensive about it. And they, and so for them, just picking on us for, for using the term soccer is just a convenient way for them to, um, to, to uh, express their, their superiority over us. I don't think that most English really care whether we use the term soccer. I, I, I don't really think it's that big a deal. Maybe America is making more of a big deal about it. Um, you know, I mean, look, the term football, I, a lot of people don't realize the origin of the term football. The term football dates back to the 13th century. And term football is actually a, a generic word that referred to any sport played on your feet. It has nothing to do with kicking a ball. Uh, football was a term to, to use to describe any sport played on your feet as, a, as opposed to a sport played on horseback. So, and that, that's why there are so many different sports called football in, in the world right now. Because in the 19th century, when most of today's sports were being developed and, and, and the rules were being codified, the word football just referred to a sport played on your feet. Um, and an and, uh, interesting fact about soccer and American football is that they were both invented the exact same year. 1863. Uh, 1863 is the first is, is considered the first year that a an actual American football game was played. I believe between two colleges, it was Rutgers and Harvard, I think it was. Um, and and 1863 is also the year that people got together in in London and formed the Football Association. So neither side knew what the other side was doing. It was only only when it was became too late when soccer got to this country, when when it became clear that it had to be given a different name than football because football had already been established in this country. Um, but look, there's, there's Gaelic rules football, there's Aussie rules football, and even rugby was originally rugby football. Um, and, and because it's such a generic term, I mean, baseball could have been called football. Fortunately, it was not, but it, it could have been called that because it's it, that's also played on your feet. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's kind of strange, isn't it? Um, you know, sometimes these things, a word like that develops um, and, and then – only when it's too late, it becomes clear that it's a, it's going to cause an enormous confusion because the word was, it's been applied to too many different things. Um, you know, good luck getting getting people to change. Look, I've said for years, American, the NFL and, and and people who are in charge of American football would be smart to change the name of that sport to, to something like gridiron, because then it would be easier to sell that sport around the world. It's a lot harder to sell American football in Europe when the word football means something else. If they just change the name, you know, they wouldn't have that problem. But, you know, good luck getting people to change to, to call American football something else. I think it's just too late for that. In the same way that it's too late to get Americans to switch to the metric system. Um, but, yeah, now, did you know that, that football was a generic term that referred to a sport played on your feet? I honestly did not. Okay, well, now you know. <laughs> it's a good thing to know. Well, I appreciate that's why I be on the show. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But, um, but I have yeah. to ask you this also. Um, Go ahead. You know, I, I never knew this when obviously Nico Cantor made the mention of it on the documentary. But comparing the 1950 World Cup victory for the USA men, you know, national team over England in Brazil to the 1980 Olympic hockey team defeating. The Soviet Union. I, I never thought about that, and that is just an amazing comparison. Yeah, I mean, you could make that comparison, but there really isn't much to, to compare there. I mean, there, there's such completely different circumstances. Um, you know, 
the, the first problem with that comparison is that the USA did beat England in the first round, but the, 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 then the USA lost the other two games they played in the first round and never even got out of the first round. So, yes, the victory was nice, but it didn't amount to anything. I mean, here in America, we're, we're sort of used to celebrating champions. And it's awfully hard to celebrate the 1950 team when it was, didn't lead to a championship. You know, if, if, yes, if we had beaten England on the way to winning the World Cup, then, of course, it was a, a, a wonderful, you know, part of our history. And it, it still is a wonderful part of our history. I'm not denying that. I, I'm just saying that, it, it, that the 1980 victory over the Soviet Union meant more, naturally meant more, because it, it was part of a championship. And here in America, we celebrate champions, you know, not, not, not teams that win freak games in first rounds. Um, you know, if you think about it by, by analogy, if the USA had been beat, in 1980, if the USA had beaten the Soviet Union in the first round of that Olympic tournament and then had not gotten out of the first round, how famous would that game have been? Probably not that big a deal. He was, oh, well, it's, it's nice we beat the Soviet Union, but we never even got out of the first round. So it wouldn't be celebrated the same way it is now. It's celebrated because it was part of a championship uh, run. Very true. Very, very true. Yeah. And, and finally, from me, uh, Dave, you know, the magic moment from Paul Caligiuri at Port of Spain at Hazley Crawford Stadium, when, when Paul struck that ball and it just rainbowed over the keeper and into the back of the net, did you think that finally that was the goal or maybe this is the match that's finally going to bring glory to this sport in this country? You know, at the time, I did not. Because remember, at the time, soccer was such a minor sport in this country. I mean, the 1980s was the, was the awful decade for American soccer. Um, the NASL had already collapsed. Um, indoor soccer was the type of soccer that was getting more attention in the media than, than outdoor soccer. Um, and, and that 1980, you know, I'm sorry, the 1989 game where we beat Trinidad, it was not even shown live. It was shown on tape delay on ESPN. Um, and, and then, the, you know, the sh- perfect example of how uh, minor a sport soccer was the, the 1990 World Cup was only available on a specific cable channel, which was not on a lot of people's cable systems. I, I, I've told this story many times. I, I was so frustrated. I could not watch the 1990 World Cup because TNT, where the games were being shown, was not on my cable system. I lived in Arlington, Arlington Virginia at the time, and Arlington Cable did not have TNT. So it shows you how much the world has changed. I, uh, I couldn't find out the results of the, of the USA Games, the 1990 World Cup, until the newspaper arrived at my doorstep the next morning. What a different world we live in now. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, in retrospect, that, that victory over Trinidad was enormous because it, it, it showed that we could, we could qualify the world, for the World Cup on our own. I mean, we all knew we were going to be in the World Cup four years later when we hosted the tournament. But that, you know, that was easy. We, we got in just automatically as hosts. 1989 was, was so wonderful because it showed we can get in, get in, in, in a competitive environment. Um, so, so 1989, that, that was part of the development of the game in this country. Um, but I really think 1994 was, where, was when the, the sport of soccer took off. Um, that's when so many people suddenly noticed the sport and, and cared about it because, because the, in part because those 1994, not just because the 1994 games were being played in America, but because all the games were on, you know, on, on, on cable channels that everyone had, like ESPN. Um, yeah, that, you know, so, so that 1990 World Cup was, was a great uh, achievement for us, but it, I wouldn't say it was the, the, uh, the linchpin to, to popularizing the sport of soccer in this country. That, that wouldn't come until four years later. 
Uh, does that Absolutely. make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it does. No, it really, yeah. really does. Because without, because without the proper uh, viewification, if you don't mind me saying that, um, then the entire thing would never have, fru- you know, come to fruition the way it has these days now. And now we're going to have another. Yeah. Finally, our second World Cup in the United States. We're going to share it with our neighbors in North and Canada, our neighbors to the South in Mexico, uh, a North Zone block, if you will, in CONCACAF. And uh, it's going to be fantastic. And of course, uh, let's not forget the Copa America will be this upcoming summer and another Gold Cup uh, next summer. And hopefully maybe the Olympics will be over here and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Maybe uh, the Women's World Cup will return here. It's just amazing to see what's going on, Dave. Yeah, and, and another thing about another aspect about the 2026 World Cup, which I'm excited about, is and something that I haven't really heard many people talking about, but they'll they'll start talking about it as we get closer to the event. The 2026 will be the um, I think it was the 250th anniversary of America. Now I'm old enough, and I think you are old enough to remember 1976 when uh, that was the uh, bicentennial. It was the 200th anniversary of America. Uh, and I, you, I, I don't know if you, you remember all of the celebrations regarding the 200th anniversary of American founding of independence. Um, that will, that will, the 250th anniversary will take place right in the middle of the 2026 World Cup. So I think there'll be a surge of wow. patriotism regarding that anniversary, uh, the way there was in July, in, in early July of 1976. Uh, and the surge of patriotism will dovetail very nicely into, you know, support for the U.S. national team at the World Cup. We just have to hope that they play well. Because, you know, yep. as well, the team is good, but it's, uh, anything can happen in a tournament. I mean, you know, just because we're there doesn't necessarily mean we're going to advance. Um, you know, I, 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 by the way, and that's another aspect of American soccer history, which is uh, frustrating to me. I, I remember back in 1994, Hearing people say, "Well, you know, I mean, the U.S. national team is good now, but just just wait to where we see where we are in 20 years." People would say, "20 years from now, we're going to have one of the best teams in the world." Well, as, as you know very well, that didn't work out. I mean, uh, we're good, but we're not great. We're not a top five team. Uh, we're you know ranked yeah. what 13th in the world or something like that, which is you know, mm-hmm. which is decent. Yeah. It's not terrible. But um, predictions about the progress of American soccer have, have, have often been very wrong. Um, and so there's no guarantee that, uh, that uh, things will turn out great in, in 2026, but certainly we can hope so. And, and, and the fact that we're playing at home gives us a natural advantage. I, I think we'll do pretty well. By the way, here's a good question for you. What sort yes. of finish mm-hmm. at, the, at, the, at the 2026 World Cup will satisfy you? Uh, I mean, do you, do, you, do you would you be satisfied with a quarterfinal finish in that tournament? Uh, do you want? Are you only hope? Would you only be satisfied with a semifinal finish, or would you just be happy if we could just get out of the first round, like like we did, you know, in 2022? Uh, what, what, uh, no, what, I, what, what, I, I would. I, to be honest with you, I would rather uh, get out of the second round because uh, I think we have the capability of getting out of the of the first round. But I would like for us to advance out of the second round and get into the quarterfinals. Yes. That would be right, better right. for me. But Dave, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate yeah. it. You, thank you again for your uh, for your part of the documentary, and uh, have a good night. And I hope to have you back on again soon. I'd love to. Thanks so much, Dan. Okay. Thank you. Dave Wasser, U.S. soccer historian, joining us for his part of the documentary. Now joining me, of course, uh, I've worked with this man at Red Bull Arena covering the New York Red Bulls. Uh, He is a well-known writer for the game, of course, not just uh, locally in MLS, but of course uh, for U.S. soccer as well. The one and only Michael Lewis from Front Row Soccer joining me tonight. Michael, welcome back. 
Happy New Year to you. Enjoy. Um, you know, I was so happy when I saw your face uh, in the documentary because I said to myself, I hope and prayed you were there and you were, and I was happy for you. Well, uh, thank you. Very, excuse me. Thank you very much for those kind words. Yeah, um, it was a memorable several days in Port of Spain in 1989. Um, I remember walking down uh, a street in, in the city, the capital city, with a bunch of sports writers, and the whole town seemed to be in red. I don't know if it was painted red, but they had Trinidad flags out wearing red. Uh, a woman was uh, teasing us, you know, you're going to lose, you're going to lose. And, you know, we smiled. When in Rome, you don't, uh, you know, you do as the Romans, or when in uh, Trinidad, you do as the Trinidadians, you don't uh, shake the cart or anything like that. But I've never seen such excitement and fervor in a country uh, feeling that they were going to um, have this great historic moment. They even, um, I don't know what Dave or, or, or Paul said earlier, but um, they Trinidad declared a holiday on the Monday after the Sunday game to celebrate, and they hadn't won or tied the game quite yet, but so much anticipation. And uh, I did tell uh, my uh, colleague from the New York Daily News, Philip Bondi, you know something, if the U.S. doesn't make it, Trinidad will put on a nice show, at least their fans would at Italia 90. The one thing that i got to ask you is this, because Todd Ramos mentioned this. Before Paul scored the goal, there was a foul by John Doyle inside the U.S. area, and the referee never blew his whistle. Were you certain when the foul occurred that you thought, here comes the penalty? I thought I was waiting for a stoppage of play, a whistle, uh, the the referee pointing toward the penalty area, and I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, they dodged a major bullet there. Uh, You know, it's one of those things, you know, the game is so tight. It could go any way. And, yeah, the U.S. got very, very fortunate at that juncture. I thought it was a penalty. Uh, now I'm sitting. There's no. We're not in a press box, by the way. The media. We're sitting in stands, and we had mm. no way of looking at any instant replay at all. So we were pretty. You know, I, I don't remember talking too much during the game because I was really trying to focus on things because I know there was no way to watch a play again until maybe after I got home or maybe someone had it on film or or video. And they would show it to us after the game. So, but it was a scary situation, and like I said, the U.S. was fortunate. No, they really were. And uh, all I can say is, if that moment does happen, obviously, then it's probably a draw. I'm, 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 you're going to have to assume it's a draw because I don't know if the, you know, they had a second goal in them. They were able to get that second goal, but you never know. You know, it was still early in the match, but. Uh, still, it was just wonderful to see. Um, you know, as we talk about this, and obviously uh, some of those moments of photography was being shown of that moment down in Port of Spain, and you were just telling me off the air, you took photos 
of everything going on, and it was used in the documentary. That's amazing that you still have you've you've had all those photos like all this time. Yeah, I definitely kept them. I put them into the internet, uh, so, you know, wherever I could do to save them, just in case they ever got lost. Um, yeah, at that juncture, we're talking November 1989. There was no there was no such thing as the mix zone where players would talk to um, the media outside the locker room. After the game, they allowed us in. I brought a film camera with me, and I think maybe some of your listeners will say, what's a film camera? Um, and uh, I had rolls, uh, you know, maybe three or four rolls. I know I couldn't uh, just keep on clicking because there was just a limit of how many photos I could take. But I'm in the locker room. I'm doing interviews. The players are celebrating as well, too. I'm taking pictures and making sure they're not undressed or anything like that. But I got some great photos of uh, Bruce Murray, Tab Ramos, uh, Mike Windishman, among others, uh, celebrating. Uh, a couple of others, uh, Paul Caligiuri talking to journalists by himself at his area. I can't even call it a stall because I think it was more benches in the locker room, pretty rudimentary uh, locker room there. But um, those I hold dear to my heart because I'm not certain there were other people with cameras in the locker room at the time. Or the other photographers had to do their job and get their film developed and get it out to, uh, whether it was to wire services or to newspapers back to the United States. And I was at the right place at the right time. Now, of course, everyone has a camera. You know, if you don't have a, a cell phone with a camera, what good are you? But uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I should say I felt privileged for them to ask me uh, to be part of the film. And I also felt privileged that uh, they used several photos of mine as well, too. I don't know if I was more excited about being in the film or seeing my photos in, 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 in the three-part documentary. Well, now that I know that those photos are from you, I'm happy for you as a whole because, you know, I, I was hoping you'd be a part of it. Um, you know, we when when Grant passed, you know, I didn't know he was going to be involved in this documentary. Uh, you know, when it finally did come out and, and, we, and I saw, uh, I, I would say, a preview of it through social media, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's in there. And sadly – this is the only time or the last time we will ever see his face or at least a form of him visually uh, through this documentary. And, you know, how sad is that? Um, it is sad, but I'm glad that they were able to do the documentary and have him give help put the history into proper context. Um, because uh, I, I think many of us journalists are historians, and I know he did research on uh, the U.S. national team in general and, of course, that game. But uh, if there's uh, – I'm looking for the right words, but if there, I guess if there's anything good about this experience, he, we get a chance to see Grant Wall one more time, or you want to say three more times since it's a three-part series and him at the top of his game not writing at this juncture but uh, telling the story and telling it very well very true it's just amazing uh the, all the hard work he has done and you know we try to 
Look, I, I try to learn from the best of the best, you included, of course, uh, back in the day when uh, Frank Jace and Brian Lewis and Jack Bell were in the press box at Metro Stars games, Red Bull games, either at Giant Stadium or Red Bull Arena. I try to learn from you guys because obviously you you are the best at what you do, and I try to learn from that and you know add on to what I try to do covering the game as well. Um, what really also surprised me, because I knew about the American Soccer League, the ASL or the ASL2, but I did not know that there were two separate first division leagues, of course, the American Soccer League, the ASL, and the National Professional Soccer League, which had, we all know about Lamar Hunt, but I didn't know about the Roonies. I didn't know about, um, you know, all these NFL owners that were also a part of these soccer leagues to make something big after the 1966 World Cup was being shown on our, you know, televisions over here in the States. I mean, that was crazy. You know, it was the birth of, let's say, you know, modern soccer, maybe not as we know it, but, you know, if it wasn't for them to put their best forward, sorry for the bad pun, who knows, you know, maybe there is no North American Soccer League. There might not be any Pelé or, or the New York Cosmos as we know it. Um, they had to start somewhere. Uh, they lost a lot of money in those days. What was considered a lot of money, maybe it was a million dollars a year. Now that might not be much for many soccer teams, but, you know, they were the among the pioneers of the game, and um, I'm glad they uh, took that risk. Same here. So am I. You know, I, I have to ask you about Warner Fricker. Um, what type of a man was he that were you aware of? Obviously, he put out a loan on his own business to keep or, or to have the idea to hope that uh, the, the the players of that 1989 team would make the World Cup for 1990 in Italy. What kind of guts did he have? And at the same time, where do you see U.S. soccer these days from what they were up to now? Well, um, Werner was like, um, I think, a no-nonsense individual, a pragmatic uh, individual as well, too, but someone who had a lot of passion for the game because uh, he was with the United uh, Hungarian Soccer Club. I, I, I'm gonna, I probably messed up the name. Maybe it's United German. United uh, Hungarian Soccer Club in uh, in Philadelphia. Um, he was a player, and uh, so he put his money where his heart was, and he wore his heart on his sleeve. Um, that was one hell of a gamble to put the money out there so the U.S. could have, were able to pay for the proper preparation before Trinidad. Um, I, you know, different times. I don't, you know, today would be, a different situation you'd probably maybe get a sponsor in that type of emergency situation and i'm sorry the second part of your question again i'm sorry well well the way that u.s soccer was run then and up till where they are now i mean it's kind of like a little bit night and day almost i mean what do you think about how oh. u.s soccer is being run these days from when they were oh, before a, di a totally different situation at the time you know, the U.S. hadn't gotten into the World Cup, and that's like a stamp of approval. If you can't play with the big boys, why would anyone want to sponsor you with big bucks? And I think uh, once we got into the World Cup, 
um, some big companies started to come around, whether it was uh, uniform um, you know, sponsorships, uh, sponsorships for various things, pumping in money. Um, it, you, know, it's, you know, we want to see a revolution. I like to use this. We want to see a revolution and things evolve. Things don't happen overnight. And slowly but surely, uh, people started to invest in the U.S. Soccer Federation and, just as importantly, in U.S. soccer. And I say that, excuse me, with a small S as well, too. You know, you, you can't just water the, the, the top of the pyramid. You've got to also water the, the middle and the, uh, the bottom of it as well, too, with the amateur semi-pro leagues. Um, or in just about every level of soccer, to taken a long time to get from here to there, from there to here, excuse me, <laughs> um, and we still have a ways to go. Um, but if you would have told me in 1989 we would be hosting our second World Cup in 2026, I'd say, where do I sign up? And like I said, we still have a ways to go. But uh, I'm just glad that many of us, I've had careers, and I'm, uh, I'm not just talking about the media, but I'm talking about players, coaches, and uh, broadcasters and everyone else uh, because of what the U.S. Uh, national team did on that November day in Port of Spain. Absolutely. Michael, as always, thank you for coming on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Very happy for you again, and congratulations on being a part of that three-series, uh, three-part documentary on the billion-dollar goal. I hope to have to uh, bring you back on again soon, and have a good night, and thank you again for that uh, participation. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, like I said, it was a privilege to be part of it, and it was great uh, to be on your show and talking to you again. Hey, have a good one. Great. Thank you, you too. Once again, Michael Lewis, Front Row Soccer, of course, U.S. soccer writer covering MLS and the men's national, wins and women's national teams. And joining me right now, of course, we wouldn't talk about this documentary than, of course, talking about the man because it was his goal that really led off to this beautiful thing, this beautiful documentary that was made, and, of course, everything that led up to where we are right now. The man that scored against the Soka Warriors at Hazley Crawford Stadium down at Port of Spain in Trinidad against Trinidad and Tobago. The one and only Paul Caligiuri joins me right now. Paul, good evening. Welcome back to the show. And, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that finally that third segment of this documentary that your story was finally told. Well, I'm glad to be on your show, Daniel. And, uh, you know, certainly it, it, the way that story, is, the three-part series has been told, the billion-dollar goal, is much deeper than just the shot heard around the world, the billion-dollar goal. It was well done because it begins in the 50s to the 60s, the 60s, the 70s to the 80s, and then, of course, the 80s to the 90s. So it has a lot of historical content in there, and it's, it's quite fascinating. It had me glued to um, actually my phone. I downloaded the app, Paramount Plus. And I started watching it, and I literally held my phone for like three hours because I could not stop watching it. And it wasn't because necessarily of the accomplishment of the 1989 team. It was because of how well that documentary was written, narrated, and filmed, and all the pictures and stories. It's just amazing. So I I really recommend it anybody to go watch that. And you don't necessarily have to be a huge soccer fan to enjoy it. 
because there's a lot of historical content in there, and it's super educating, and it's a lot of fun. Do I have to call you Kreskin? Because you predicted that entire thing with Tony Miola next to you, and it happened. The way that you said it, that was unbelievable. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating how that all worked out. And, you know, part of me was trying to get, you know, Tony Miola pumped up, psyched up. You know, I mean, he is our goalkeeper, and if he kept keeps those nets clean, we have a chance at winning the game. All we have to do is score a goal. So, you know, it is fascinating how it all worked out. But, we, you know, that from that night where I'm looking back up at him on the couch and I'm sitting on the floor and we kind of reminisce about the headlines being 1-0, Tony Miola gets the shutout, Calgary scores a goal, is highly unfeasible to happening but it did happen and you know we had fun with it because we left the next day for trinidad and we're literally walking through the airport and we're looking at trying to find signs that are going to give us and lead us more into the depth of this uh, whole prophecy so to say and uh you know we're leaving out of gate eight and what's okay gate eight what does that mean uh, it means great but ironically our plane you know the airline i don't think exists anymore named pan am was named destiny and that was a huge tell-all because as you're walking through that little tunnel and you're right before getting the plane, you know, he points out, it was like, look at that. And it said destiny. And it was our destiny. And it was a United States' destiny. And it was very important that uh, we go down there with confidence and with uh, uh, no fear, you know, because we had everything to gain and nothing to lose. But it wasn't in intimidating circumstances. The fact that Trinidad had – top players from Dwight York playing at Man United, one of the top goal scorers in the EPL, to Russell Latteby, their crafty center midfielder that was playing at Benfica in Portugal. I mean, we didn't have players on our team like that playing at big clubs. Now we do. And then, of course, you know, knowing that Trinidad hadn't lost a game. You know, they didn't even tie a game in qualifying at home. So it, it, it kind of put those – it shelved all those factors away, including the Sea of Red. Um, where all the fans were there, and it kind of put it in perspective for us to focus on what we could do and give us that little lift and confidence. And it obviously worked for, for Tony Miola because that guy totally starred for our team in the second half and made some critical saves, positioning, routine things, but he certainly was a leader in that game. Now, I want to ask you this because um, I had on U.S. soccer historian Dave Wasser earlier on the show talking about the uh, – the passport situation, of course, you know, back then, they were very loosey-goosey on the rules of, you know, are you born in this country? Are you not born in this country to play for their national team? I found it interesting when you were playing in Germany for Hamburg, I guess it was West Germany at the time, um, there was no international fixture dates. If you were called to the national team, you did not have any international dates to go to play for the U.S. I mean, you were either forced to stay or they just let you go for the heck of it. There's Now there's rules, of course, but I found that very strange back then. Yeah, and it was super awkward for a player. I mean, you get called into your national team, and now i got to go to the coach and say, hey, can I miss this weekend because there's a big national team? I want to play for the United States in this match or whatever. And uh, at the same time, you're timid because if you're not starting or trying to get started or you're starting and you don't want to lose your starting position, you don't know how that's going to affect your status there. 
and it's super awkward. So, you know, I'm glad the game has evolved. And you mentioned also when I played in Hamburg, I started playing there in 1987, and we're here talking about the shot hurdle around the world, the billion-dollar goal that happened in 89, which is two years later. Um, there was only three international players per team back then in the Bundesliga, and you could have you had you could only have one player out of those three that were outside of the European Union, you know? So when you really think about it, you could have three international players on your roster, but only one of them could be outside of the European Union. And I was that one player. So it was, imagine how hard it is or was for international players to break into not only Germany, but of course Italy and England and France and Spain, all the major nations that had the same rules. So the evolution of the game obviously looked to expand the opportunities for players to play in different countries internationally, professionally, and also, you know, took off the pressure from players needing to confront their coaches about, you know, going to play for their countries or not and, you know, jeopardizing their situation in, in with their, with their uh, team. But, um, you know, one of the things back then, was a little different. I mean, obviously, you're thinking the late 80s. Uh, a lot of these countries didn't necessarily have international fixture dates, but they did have qualifying dates at the same time. So in Europe, you know, all the teams would play qualifying in and about the same day or weekend. And um, so they were, they were fundamentally used to that would be the opportunity. So players that were in from that uh, confederation – certainly didn't have to deal with it if you're outside the confederation in the united states at the time i mean you're talking pre-world cup 1990 uh we had no clue i mean we had no idea of when we were going to play how we're going to play what kind of games we're going to play um if you go back a little bit my first international start for the u.s national team was against trinidad and tobago in 1985 so four years before the 89 I got my first start for the United States national team. I think I was like 20 years old. And uh, the game was played at El Camino Community College. And we had probably like a few hundred scattered fans at the game. So we're playing at a community college, a World Cup qualifier, with only a few hundred, 500 fans at best, you know. So four years later, it's packed crowds and everything. Once we qualified for the 1990 World Cup, sure, it solidified our our ability to host the uh, the 1994 World Cup that exposed this great game to the Americans, sports fans, and the American people for the first time at that level. But, you know, it, it also brought a lot of fans into the stadiums, the national team. Today, men's or women's national teams, wherever they play in the United States, it's packed. It doesn't matter what opponent we have. But it was certainly awkward, you know, going back to 1985, 1986 and in, in 87 and think about where we were at and what you know qualifying did for our country and the development of the sport in the United States by qualifying for the World Cup and of course then hosting a World Cup in 94 and in between all that we obviously won a women's World Cup and then we hosted another women a women's World Cup and now here we go uh, I just heard our, our last guest Michael great man you know he's kind of like an encyclopedia to soccer. And, yeah, we're about to host the next World Cup in 2026, and then hopefully we get the bid to host the 2027 Women's World Cup as well.
I, I was just curious to know because obviously 1989, 1990, obviously I guess that was the start of the VCR era uh, for videotapes and everything. Did anyone videotape the game to see, you know, the result or who scored? Did you know someone that did? Or, you know, in the documentary, was that the very first time you actually saw a replay of you scoring that goal? Well, it was on tape delay, as you probably remember. And um, I remember calling home, you know, back in the day when you had to call collect. <laughs> Most of the listeners yep. probably don't even remember what collect calls were, but um, it was still on. And my dad's like, it can't react. I know it's not like I could hear you, but, you know, the family's watching it. I don't want to give it away. Um, but my father did, you know, tape the game. And I certainly have a VHS tape somewhere. I haven't converted to the digital. But, you know, you bring up a good point because when Paramount plus CBS finished the great work of Grant Wall for the billion-dollar goal, the one thing that I hadn't seen before that I did for the first time was that angle right it was a angle from directly behind the shot so those that uh, have watched the billion dollar goal or even the teaser reel to it could see that the the angle or more or less the height of the ball bouncing and how i struck it so you i i get a better feel and i knew how i hit the ball when i hit it but certainly it validates it by seeing it, the shot from behind because I remember exactly how I shot the ball with, with some uh, force and, of course, with top spin, and that gave me a way better angle than what has been uh, shown up to this point. You know, one of the biggest pictures or the two biggest photos that have circulated since 1989 till 2024 has been one where you had Tab Ramos, John Harks, Peter Vermes and Bruce Murray with his arms in the sky, and I'm kind of running out of what was the, the aftermath of the celebration. And it, it, was a, it, it looks like a historical celebration of the goal, post-goal. But another picture was of me dribbling in the Sea of Red right-footed, but there was never really a picture that showed exactly the moment I struck the ball from a front angle or even a side angle. So I'd imagine the only way to find one or get one is you'd have to find it on a VHS or, a, you know, if it's digitalized, you'd have to stop it, pose it, and, you know, take a snapshot from that point, unless there's some photographer out there that I've missed, either in Europe or South America, Central America, or wherever, that had captured that moment. But I do believe it's kind of unique and ironic that it kind of – caught everyone out of surprise you know it obviously sounds like I surprised a lot of my teammates that I took the shot and scored um and also it, it surprised the goalkeeper it surprised you know the fans there it it was just a surprising unexpected moment but certainly it was not captured on a still from a front angle which if anyone out there is hearing me and has it please send it to Daniel Forrestine's uh, show so we could have it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Absolutely. I would love that. Um, I know you still have your jersey from that match. Um, do you take it out every once in a while to reminisce about that moment? I mean, I know you've got a lot of things 
going on in your life. Obviously, you're a dad. You probably have your own business at the moment. I believe you're still part of Orange County FC. But um, do you reminisce uh, every once in a while? You take that jersey out of the closet or out of the box and just stare at it and just say, I can't believe what I did so many years ago. You know, you preserve these things, right? So you have to store it properly. Um, and I did. And uh, when I did the interview for the Billion Dollar Goal, uh, they came out to Southern California. We met. We talked. But I did bring, you know, some materials such as the jersey and things that I had from that era, both, you know, 1990 World Cup, 1994 World Cup. And I did stare at it. I mean, it was preserved. It's back in its, you know, bin and put away in the closet and uh, packed away. And hopefully I give it to my kids someday or that they keep it and pass it on to their kids, et cetera. But, um, you know, it was interesting you asked that because, you know, it had, like, stains on it. And I believe we washed it. I know we did, but you still have those stains. And when I told the cameraman, I go, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, there's some, you know, stains or dirt or something they loved it they go oh no 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 we need to keep that we like that angle and we got we want to take a picture of the jersey and everything but it was a lot of fun as you can imagine to go back and see the jersey you know there's been the u.s soccer federation crest the logo that we see today you know is different than back in 1989 and 90 that period and it changed for the 1994 world cup and then of course it's changed again um so we we have this uh emblem or the crest of the United States Soccer Federation that has evolved within different periods of the game. And I don't know if it's going to keep changing, but certainly I have one of the vintage jerseys with the vintage crest of the U.S. Soccer Federation. And I think it makes it all that more special and memorable to have these kind of collectible items. Absolutely. And it's just wonderful to hear from you to talk about that wonderful moment and uh, just just to discuss everything that happened that day and and everything else everything else that surrounds that moment, whether you were able to to go and play in that match or not, if Hamburg was going to uh, you know keep you or not uh, for those for that weekend, you never know. Of course, there were really no uh, permanent fixture dates for the international calendar, but thankfully. Now we do have those changes, and it's a little bit – I shouldn't say it's a little bit, but it's a lot better than it was back then. Um, and finally, do you still talk to Tony about the clicker situation? <laughs> you know, I, I let Tony have his moment. I mean, he's bigger, stronger. He was a force. And, you know, what, are you going to steal the couch and let me have the clicker? I don't see that. that there's no rationale in there, right? I mean – Everyone knows that he had the couch, he had the clicker. But, you know, Tony and I remain dear friends. You know, you get to that level, it takes a lot. It takes not just uh, chemistry on the field and dedication off the field and chemistry, et cetera. You, you know, you literally become a brotherhood. And everyone will talk about how, how deep it goes and how much you put in. And, you know, it's life. It's for life, you know. So, some of my old teammates I don't see or talk to as much. Tony, I do. But um, obviously, if I do come across anybody, I'd, I'd still feel the same love and affection and a respect for them as I did back then, as I do today. And one of the things, I, if you have a moment, I could tell a quick story about the 1989 going down to Trinidad game that would be interesting. And also, to let you know do. that I'm highly involved with U.S. futsal, trying to launch futsal in our 
youth clubs and communities and, you know, all the way up to however far we get it. So I've taken on a recent new project, and I'm super excited about it because I believe that, you know, in order for us to win a World Cup someday on the men's side, we're definitely going to have to incorporate futsal at the younger ages and uh, carry it on through there, and it helps the development and skills and decision-making on the field. And I, know, I'm just, I mentioned that because you had mentioned, like, what, what I've been doing and you know, what I'm involved in. But here's my story. We get, we get down to Trinidad, we land, and, you know, some people may remember this guy named John Stolmeyer, right? And John mm-hmm. Stolmeyer, you know, was a tough Indiana, hard-nosed, you know, center midfielder that was a fixture. I mean, this guy was, you know, the backbone of the team. And uh, when we landed, um, and we always thought that he was Coach Bob Gansler's favorite player, you know, because he always started, always played. You know, the coach had a, some sort of affinity to him and favoritism, at least we thought. But um, the interesting part is when we get our luggage, we start going out of the, in the, into the bus, he starts telling us that uh, there's a Stolmeyer Castle in Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And, and none of the guys believe him, right? I mean, this is a total Indiana guy. It's like, John, you don't have a Stolmeyer Castle here. And he kept saying, no, no, I have family here, and cousins and uncles and everything. And nevertheless, we drive by the stadium, we drive by the polo grounds, we make a right turn, and we're going along the side of the polo field. And there's a renovated castle along, like, Embassy Row that says the Stolmeyer Castle. And we all hmm. fell through the roof going, no way. And it validated John Stolmeyer that there was a Stolmeyer Castle, right? Get to the hotel. We get the room list. And I'm rooming with John Stolmeyer. Oh, this is great. You know, I'm rooming with John Stolmeyer. I meet his family. They're in the lobby waiting for us. I mean, everything's true. There's a Stolmeyer Castle. He has uncles and aunts and cousins, and they're on the lobby, and they're greeting us. And I'm and I get this big game. I'm rooming with John Stolmeyer, right? Everything's great up to this point. So we go down, and, uh, you know, we have a team dinner. Actually, it was the next day, right? The next day we have a walkthrough. We have the team dinner. After the team dinner, you know, we have a team meeting. And I believe that John still has some of his family waiting for him, and we'll see him later on in the hotel room or whatever. We'll visit. Coach Gansler gives the starting lineup. And I'm starting in place of John Stolmeyer. John Stolmeyer, up to this point, has played and started in every game. Like, he has not been on the bench at all, coming off the bench. And here I'm starting at center midfield for my roommate that I've never roomed before in my life, John Stolmeyer, in his home, with his family there. It was the most awkward feeling I ever had to go back up to that room and talk to John saying, how do you feel? I mean, I know how you feel, but I mean, I don't want to feel like I'm scared and intimidated. And I mean, he was the, the greatest professional ever. Give me a hug saying, just represent me on the field. And hopefully that gives you extra motivation and desire and motivation to go out and get the job done. I know you could do it. So knowing that I slept like a baby that night and I didn't fear my roommate was going to punch my lights out, you know, because he's mad, which he wasn't. So we go to the next hmm. day to the game. And on the way yep. to the game, it, it, back in the day, FIFA, you had to give the list of 18 players, but then two of the players 
actually had to go sit up in the stands in the press box area. And you only had allowed 16 players on the um, bench and had to designate your sub-roster before. Well, another player, Desmond Armstrong, first African-American-born American player ever to play in a World Cup. Wow. Is one of the players that will not start, nor will he be on the roster. And now I'm confronted with my second awkward moment. I'm wearing his jersey, number 15. And I'm, oh, my gosh. And I, first, I take John Stolmeyer's position. You know, I only played one time center midfield, and that was the game. And I'm playing for John Stolmeyer. That was awkward. And now I'm wearing Desmond Armstrong's jersey, number 15. Uh, and that was awkward. And I confronted Desmond the same way, the same response as John gave me. Big hug, represent me. Like, you know, I would represent myself. You could do it. Total teammate. It was great. Never wore that jersey again, number 15, and I never played center midfield ever again for U.S. men's national team. And I wonder today, you know, at my age, you know, this was many, many years ago, does those kind of things play a big factor and a role in the whole psychological preparation or the fate and destiny, as we put it? I think it does. I think that there has a lot of variables that play into factors of how we succeed and how we go about things, but certainly – you know, one of the things is I had to clear my mind and not be intimidated, not have any negative thoughts in the back of my mind. And by just going to those guys and confronting them, I thought that was the appropriate thing to do. And it worked out because they gave me the, the greatest blessing and greatest support ever. And, you know, I thank John Stolmeyer and Desmond Armstrong to this day because it put me on the field in free mind, free spirit. And I was able to perform for the U.S. Men's National Team and help us qualify for the first World Cup in 40 years. And, that's our destiny, my friend. Absolutely. Paul, as always, I appreciate your time to come on the show. Thank you very much for being a part of the documentary. Of course, obviously, this documentary would not have been made without the magic moment that you provided, not just for you and the teammates and your, the coaches, but for every American soccer fan back in that day. Thank you once again, and I hope you have a wonderful evening and have a great new year. You too, brother. Keep kicking. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Once again, Paul Caligiuri joining us tonight uh, talking about that wonderful moment. And once again, if you haven't seen it yet, please go to Paramount Plus and go to the sports department for the Billion Dollar Gold documentary. And if you don't have Paramount Plus, please go and get yourself a subscription for Paramount Plus. It, you get a yearly subscription. I have it. It's wonderful. It's not just, of course, the sports on there. It's the other things on it as well. But once again, CBS Sports has been doing an amazing job with all their soccer properties, whether it be the UEFA Champions League, the UEFA Europa League, the UEFA Conference League, uh, the Italian Serie A, the Scottish Premier League, the Argentinian First Division, the Brazilian Brasileiro, uh, the NWSL, CONCACAF World Cup qualifying will be starting very soon. CAF uh, Nations League matches in the group stage. And, of course, the semis are coming this upcoming and final. That's coming up this uh, March. And uh, what they did last year with the U.S. Open Cup, uh, of course, you could always watch their Galazzo Network either through Paramount Plus or live through Pluto TV. 
Uh, just go to PlutoTV.com, go to the sports section, and head to the CBS Sports Galazzo channel on Pluto TV to watch it for free. Uh, they have done everything correctly. And once again, Peter Radovich Jr., the executive producer for sports or for soccer for CBS, uh, he has done an amazing job, and hopefully we'll have him on the show to talk about what he has done. Um, once again, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank my guests for tonight, U.S. soccer historian Dave Wasser. I also want to thank Michael Lewis, U.S. soccer writer, and, of course, the one and only Paul Caligiuri, whose goal made this documentary happen. Uh, we'll have a show tomorrow night. I'll be joined by Carter Krishnire from World Soccer Talk and Fabian Reinkel from now with uh, SBI Soccer at Soccer by Ives. Uh, SBI Soccer to preview the U.S. Men's National Team tournaments in the Nations League and, of course, the Copa America. And we will also preview the Olympics for the U.S. Uh, national Team for the Under-23 squad, and we'll see what happens there. They'll be joining me to talk about that. And don't forget, of course, this coming Saturday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time, the U.S. will be taking on Slovenia in a friendly course at Camp Cupcake. We'll see who's going to be featured in this match, and uh, we will see what will happen uh, on Saturday afternoon. Uh, if we do not have post-game, we'll make it to a review show later that night or possibly the next day. So uh, we'll be, I'll let you know about that uh, when we get to it. But I want to thank my guests once again. Uh, Dave Wasser, U.S. Soccer Historian. Michael Lewis, Front Row Soccer and U.S. Soccer uh, Columnist and writer. And, of course, once again, former U.S. Men's National Team uh, midfielder and defender, Paul Caligiuri, whose goal against Trinidad Tobago launched the entire historic moment and the movement of where we are with the sport in this country today. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for listening to me tonight. And as always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Take care so long and have a good night. Bye-bye for now. Have a good night, everybody.